using the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, we're going to be at the end of chapter 12 and into chapter 13 today. Last week, um, well, actually, we are in a series entitled Shaped and basically walking through the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, All during the fall, we looked at the first 11 chapters and kind of laid a foundation. Uh, Now what we're doing is we're beginning to work through chapters 12 through 26, 27, and um, we're, we're going to talk about things a little differently as we work through these chapters, deal with them a little differently because of the kind of literature it is in the Bible and how we as Christians read it and understand it and apply it to our own lives. But what we're talking about is this in this series is shaped, uh, that we're asking God to shape our lives for glory through mission. And we want to live out a wholehearted allegiance through a whole life obedience. That's kind of, that's the imagery that God's putting on my heart just to help our church grasp what's trying to take place here is that, that that this is really the first primer for missional living in the world. And so as we look at this book of Deuteronomy, we take it in its context, but then we apply it into our context and we have to ask, what does it mean because of Christ? What does it mean because of Jesus? And so that's where we're at. And last week we looked at chapter 12 where uh, as he begins to shift to say, okay, now you're about to move into the land. And and when you go into the land, you're going to live in a certain way. And he said, the first thing that's going to be your first priority is the way that you worship. And we talked about worship last week. We talked about a place for God's name and God's presence as we looked at the first 28 verses of chapter 12. You see, here's what he said. And we basically outlined it in this way, that really true worship means or or is demonstrated through three expressions, the expression of relationship, the expression of stewardship, and the expression of mission. And so when Moses commands the people to seek a place where God has chosen to place his name and his habitation, we know that the chapter shaped around that sentence, that phrase, because he says it six different times. At every critical juncture that he's teaching the people, he says, seek out the place where God has chosen to place his name and his habitation or his presence. And he's, he's doing that for a reason. He's teaching us. Because what he's saying to us is that God is there. God's going to meet with you there. And we understand that God's first priority in worship has always been relationship, not religious ritual. That is so important for us to understand. He doesn't want us just going through the paces of activity, but he wants us entertaining a relationship with him. And so Moses goes on to instruct them in the practices that they'll entertain in these places as well. And he teaches us that because God is provider of all, that we can bring glory unto him through all of our life. And so because of Christ, we have this freedom from worshiping stuff, and it increases the strength of our joy in God in this life. to to worship him and so we talked about stewardship as the second expression of true worship and how it involves all of life to glorify God and then third Moses addresses the practices not only when they're gathered together but in the cities in which they live because he says look you're going to get spread out it's going to take a long time for you to travel to these certain places at the time of festivities and, and festivals throughout the year and so there's a way that you should live in those places too and what God is saying to them is I'm not only with you when you're gathered but I will be with you when you are as we've come to understand scattered as well when you are in the cities in which you live and so we see that third expression of mission and how it means that mission means worship is a way of life wherever you are and whoever you are with in order to make God's name known among all peoples 
And so God himself is distinguished in true worship. And we see this when we bring it into the New Testament and we see how Christ is the one mediator between God and man, Paul says in 1 Timothy. And that true worship glorify God, glorifies God by confessing that only in Jesus do we have this relationship and that he alone is the owner of our life. He's the Lord and that's what it means for him to be Lord and that all of life is lived for him. And then in John 4, Jesus has this conversation with the woman at the well. And not a woman that would be heralded as the finest Christian ever or anything of that nature. But they begin to talk about true worship. And Jesus says to her, that she poses the question to him, you know, the Jews say you're supposed to worship on that mountain and the Samaritans, we worship on this mountain. And she said, but if God is seeking for the place that he's chosen to put his name and habitation, which is surely the very part of the back of her mind that's driving this question, she says, which mountain has his name on it. Where is his presence? Is it here or is it here? And Jesus says this, it's not on that one or that one. It's not about a place, it's about a person and I am the person in which God's name and presence is brought together. And God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we culminated the sermon last week by understanding that Jesus centers our worship when we find our salvation in him that God seeks true worshipers who worship through Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth so as we come to verse 29 of chapter 12 today I want us to pick up and he's still talking about worship but he turns the conversation to what we will look at today Verse 29, he reads, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Now stop there for just a moment. Moses follows his teaching on worship by beginning to warn them about the ways of false worship. See, God made worship primary among his people. But people must guard against the things that threaten the priority of that worship in their own lives. Moses uses one practice, the practice of child sacrifice, to highlight the vile nature of idol practices. That was one that he used as an illustration, but he says all of the things that are an abomination to God is what these people regularly practice. And so God commands true worship to distinguish that he is not like all the other false gods. You see, true worship of God's people identifies not only his people, but also it provides a faithful witness of God among all the peoples in the world. But we we're going to see today, and I need to set this up just a little bit. We're going to see today that even today real threats remain against true worship in the world. Christians often grow disillusioned by attacks and by threats that arise after their conversion Especially it's true of a new Christian, one that's just recently placed their faith in Christ and become a Christian. There's often a season of of just real sheer excitement. And then following that, I don't know how long necessarily passes, but there will often be a test or something come up against that person. and, And so it'll test their faith in Christ. This is also true of, of, of others in the faith, but, but we understand what tests and trials are about, and I want to help us with that today. But often if people remain immature in their faith of Christ, and I hope you understand, I don't mean that in a derogatory manner, but just descriptively, that, 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 that there is a maturity with which Christ wants to grow us up in understanding who he is and what he's doing in our life. And those who remain immature in their faith so often wrestle continually in their life with why does God do this to me or why does this happen to me? And let me tell you a primary indicator of immaturity in dealing with the threats against true worship in our life 
It's when a person has an attack or a trial come against them, a threat. One of these threats come up in their life and they look at others to identify the problem instead of looking to Christ to see what he is about doing in their own heart and in their own life. It's what we would call the blame game just in life. It's always somebody else's fault. It's always because of somebody else. They're doing this to me, or I would never do this to myself. Instead of looking to Christ and going, Lord, what are you doing? And why is this occurring in my life? It's not wrong to ask God why. It's wrong to ask God why and not be ready for the answer to the question. See, some people get mad at God for what he's failed to do. So these threats come up against our true worship or our relationship with God. And we we say to God, do you even know what you're doing? Are you really God? So sometimes we blame the church. You know, you bunch of hypocrites. If you did a better job of this, I wouldn't have as many problems in my life. Sometimes we blame other Christians. If you loved me better, if you were more faithful in the way you loved me as a fellow Christian, I wouldn't deal with so many problems in my life. And here's the truth of the matter. There's not a person in the room who bears the name of Christ as a Christian who hasn't dealt with these very attitudes, thoughts, struggles in their life. You see, my point is that we're all threatened in our true worship of God. What we do with that will determine whether we turn to Christ to let him grow us and mature us in his image. Threats test our faith in order to deepen our faith, in order to renew our strength, and in order to bring growth and maturity in Jesus. And so Moses begins in this way, verse 32. He says, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. You see, the people knew, the Israelites knew that they had not kept the law. This was most obvious 40 years earlier when God was giving the law on the mountain and they were melting their gold to build a golden calf. That's pretty obvious when God's speaking and they're worshiping their false idol, right? They knew they had not kept the law and the stark reality of their life was just like the stark reality of our lives. Not only had they not kept it, but they couldn't keep it. Just like Paul said, every time I want to do what I know I ought to do, I don't do it. And every time I do what I know I shouldn't do, I keep doing it. That's Paul's way of saying, you know you wouldn't keep the law because you couldn't keep the law. And you haven't kept the law. That's what the Israelites were very familiar with. But Moses is not trying to strip them of hope. He's pointing them to the only one who was their hope and who could be their hope. They didn't need a more than. That's why he says, do not add to it. The word of God is sufficient for your salvation. It is sufficient for your relationship with Christ. And do not take away from it. Yes, there are things about it you don't like. But that says more about you than it does about God. But what you can know is what God wants to do in you. And so he gives them this command that I'm pointing you to the one who is your hope. God promises in his covenant, Jeremiah 31, that he will give his people in this promise. He will give them a new heart. And in that new heart, the law of God will be written in it and on it. And we know that the covenant is the promise of who? It's Christ Jesus. And what is Christ Jesus? He is the fulfiller of the law. He's not only the lawgiver as the triune God, but he is the fulfiller. He is the one who came and perfectly lived the law. He did what the Israelites could not do. He did what you and I cannot do. But he did it, and he did it perfectly for us. And after he lived a perfect life, he died the perfect death that appeased the wrath of God provided the necessary atoning sacrifice for you and I to have a relationship with God. And then three days later, after his death, he rose and left the grave perfectly empty, showing us that he held authority not, over only, not only over life, but also over death. And he is the only one in whom our hope is found. So you see, the law points us to Jesus. For Matthew five seventeen, Jesus says, I am the end of the law. 
And that word telos for end is not it's done, no longer needed, but rather it's complete. It's fulfilled. I am the law fulfiller. I am the one, not that makes you be able to do the law, but I am the one who has done the law for you. And so the law points us to Jesus to trust him alone as the perfect law fulfiller for us. So last week, as we looked at Jesus centering our life in worship, I want to play off of that and build on it today to understand this, that Jesus centers our life in worship to mature us as we guard against threats and as we grow through the tests and the trials of life. And that's where Moses takes us in verse 1 of chapter 13. And here's where he says to us when he warns the people. Verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. And then look at the last phrase of verse 5. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, I'll tell you in just a moment why I skipped the first part of verse 5 and, and make that application so we can understand But the Lord is warning his people against these threats that will come against their true worship. We're going to see three threats today. And while our response will not be identical to the response that Moses directs the people to give to the people in the new land, the seriousness of our response should be just as serious as they took it in that day. The first threat that he identifies here is false teachers, false prophets. Those who propagate a message that is not from God, but sometimes is considered from God because of the signs and wonders. He says this, they'll do signs and wonders. They'll do things that that you can't believe a person could do, and it will amaze you. We see this even into the New Testament. Magicians and sorcerers would do things that, that were almost like the same things that the apostles or even Jesus himself were doing, and the people would begin to follow them because of the sign and wonders. But what Moses is telling the people all of these years prior is that the signs and the wonders do not validate the messenger. That the test of the identity of any true prophet or teacher is the content of their message, not the wow or the cool factor of the messenger or the presentation. I don't know of anything that could be more applicable to us in our day and time. We are so wowed by presentations that will almost drink any false prophet's Kool-Aid. Teachers who point anywhere other than Jesus for hope, for faith, and for obedience always prove false. People recognize that Jesus taught with authority. Matthew chapter 7, at the end of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, you know what it says? That the people recognized There was something different about this man. And it's not that they didn't have other religious teachers among them. As a matter of fact, many of them were sitting in the crowd the day that Jesus was teaching. But there was a difference. Dude, you don't teach anything like him. I mean, I don't know about you, but but being a preacher myself, if Jesus is present like physically, I'm not going to say, hey, I'll preach today. You know, I think he ought to get the floor, right? And hopefully he has the floor even when he's using his messengers. But the people were struck because he taught as one who had authority. He taught as one who really knew what he was talking about. And it struck them spiritually very deeply. He honored God's word and then he applied it to their lives. And even though signs and wonders often accompanied Jesus' teaching, they never served as the focus of the disciples' ministry or Jesus' ministry. Jesus is the truth. That's that's what the scriptures tell us in John chapter 1. He is the one who will not deceive, but he will always shine the light of the glory of the truth into every facet of our lives. Jesus is our true and faithful teacher in truth. And friends, 
That's why when you come here, we want you to walk away with more of him, not more of us. And what you get of us should be a pathway to filling your life with more of him, whether it's in the teaching, whether it's in the worship, whether it's in the fellowship, the welcoming, or otherwise among our body. We minister in the name of Christ that he might truly minister through us. But the Bible tells us that false teachers continue in their deceptive practices even today. Paul warns of them in 1 Timothy Chapter 6, he teaches us that doctrines they will teach will not align with God's word and, and, and will not align with true godliness and the practices of it. And he says to them that we are to believe and, or that they believe and teach that godliness is a means of gain. That, that in other words, godliness and, and growing in God's word is not a means of growing into the image of God, but it's growing up to God so we can get something from him. And the real prize is what we got and not God himself. And that's how they propagate their message. They're passionate and they're persuasive. But there's a reason for that because they are depraved in their mind. You know what depraved means? It means dark. There's no light. Their mind is jacked up with what they teach, and they're deprived of the truth. Deprived. It's, it's not there. They believe themselves because they themselves are deceived by their own deception. So therefore, they're very passionate and persuasive. They're compelling but at the end of the day, it's not their presentation that should woo you, but it is the Word of God that should fill the content of what they're saying to you. Christians guard against following false teachers by discerning the message according to God's Word, not by outward presentation or by an awing persona. It's important for Christians to recognize how God uses false teachers, though. God says, well, they're here. I can do one of two things. I can annihilate them, and that's not typically his pattern, or I can use them for good. That is his pattern. God uses false teachers as a test. That's what it says here, to reveal. The Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Let me, let me draw a distinction here to help you understand something Tests in our life arise when things in the world come against us, both directly and sometimes indirectly. But they both create a test, whether someone confronts or opposes or states something about us, or maybe just a situation or a circumstance arises that, that really frustrates us or angers us or makes us depressed about the circumstances or the situation. And what they do, whether they attack us directly or indirectly, they create an opportunity for us to transfer our hope or our trust in something or someone other than Jesus. Man, life's hard. i got to find another way. That's a test. That's a test. Here's a temptation. A temptation arises when something in the world blows like in, uh, across, our, across our hearts and it stokes an ember of sin or sinful propensity that exists within us. It might be a thought that is not truly aligned with God's word, but because we like it, we allow it to remain. It might be an affection, something we've come to love, and we've tried to serve God in many ways, but we've never surrendered this particular love that we have for that thing or that person. We've never surrendered it to Christ. It blows its wind across the ember of our attitude towards other people or towards other things. And we've said, God, I trust you in a lot of ways, but this disposition or this attitude that I hold towards that certain thing is just something I'm not going to let you affect. Or maybe it's a particular action that we're engaged in. And so the wind of the world simply blows across an ember of sinfulness or sin within our own life, and it blows into a flame an alluring promise for us if we indulge in whatever that sinful propensity is that's sitting within us. Do you see the difference? 
A test comes against you from the outside. A temptation stirs up from within. I would argue much more dangerous because it's much more deeply seated within you and you've learned to navigate it internally to allow it to remain. Know this. James 1.13, God never tempts people to sin. It is not God tempting you to sin. I, I can't tell you how important this is for your growth and maturity as a believer. When you are tempted to sin, God will always use that if you will turn to him. But he is never the source of that. That propensity is within you. And what you want to do is turn to Christ to find out where that hope is holding to you or you're holding to that hope so you can repent. You can confess and say, God, it's there. That affection, that thought, that attitude, that action, it's in me and I need to get it out. I confess. You agree with God. That is sin and I don't want it. And you repent of it and you turn to Christ and to the truth that he gives to you. God never tempts people to sin, but God always uses every test, every trial, even every temptation, are you ready? To bless you and for your good if you will turn to him and trust him in the midst of it. Did you hear what I said? Not even your deepest temptations will destroy you if you will turn them to Christ and let him remake you where they burn. That is power unimaginable. Temptations can actually serve to mature you into the image of Christ when he is your hope and your trust. Do not miss that, Christian. That is the redeeming power of our God. And that is the display of his love for you. These tests, friends, they prove the genuineness of our worship. And, and, and we come to where we know our love for God is genuine when we walk with Christ through these tests, through these trials, and through these temptations. Might I give you briefly just three questions to help discern these false teachings? They always come from a false teacher, some source, but at the end of the day, you need to be able to refute the teaching so that you can identify whether it's false or true from its source. Here's the first question you need to ask yourself. Does their message align and agree with God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ? So, so there's, here's the first part of this question. It's a pretty complex question. Does the message that they are purporting align and agree with God's word and the gospel. Now, why do I put those two together and make the distinction? Because some people will beat you to death with God's word and there won't be any gospel in it. You've heard of the Bible bat and some of you have been beat with it. Do this, do this, do this. You want God to love you? You really think God's going to love you? Do this. And all you walk away with is what you've got to do to hope God will love you in return. That's the Bible without any gospel. Here's the gospel without any Bible. Don't worry about all that stuff. God loves you, whatever you do. You're good. Don't fret it. And there's no truth to it. It's just all, it's just all feel-goodism. When God's truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ remain together, it will confront you in your sin and lead you to your Savior. You will not be rejected because of where you fail. And you will be welcome to the one who perfectly fulfilled the law for you. My question that I'm proposing to you in discerning this. Does their message align and agree with God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, here's the second part of that question. In their meaning, in its pattern, and in its spirit. 
In the meaning, I simply mean this, that everyone uses some of the same words and mean things totally different with it. Does the words that they are using mean the things that you know the Scripture to teach them to mean? This is, I'll give you one illustration. We started this church with a tagline that says, leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. Why? Because the word Christian was so overly used, we knew people would assign a meaning to it that we weren't trying to intend to mean. Now, I use the word Christian all the time. I love the word, have no problem with it. And to us, it's synonymous with Christ follower. But what I'm trying to say to people is this, don't bring your jargon in here. And think that we're saying the same thing. Listen to us for what we're saying and understand what we're trying to say in our message and see if that's what you agree with. So just because they use a word, ask, do they use it in the way I understand the Bible to mean it? Now, we can't explain every word we use in every sermon, but a trajectory and a context within which the way they use those words will provide that for you. Not only that, not only the meaning, but the pattern of words. Paul instructs Timothy Remain with the pattern of the sound teaching that I have given to you. Do not alter these words. Listen, if people tell you what you must do to please God so you can be saved, that pattern is always out of order. It's a bad pattern. That's what religion tells you. What does the Old Testament and the New Testament tells us? God saves us so that we can know him, so that we can live in a relationship with him. Anything that reverses that order is a false teaching. And the third one is the spirit of it. Man, I, 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 quite frankly, there's a lot of conviction in my heart about this one. Because we can preach good sermons and we can preach good truths and we can preach them in a spirit by which... They're just not palatable. And I really liked what that person had to say, but gee whiz, they need a coach, <laughs> right? And, and, and God help you. you you've got to bear with preachers a lot, I know. And, and, but the question I'm getting at here is this. Does the spirit of what they're saying, does it align with the gospel? And is it from a heart? Of God. The second question is this, am I more knowledgeable of, do I have a greater affection for, am I more hopeful in and more desirous to obey Jesus because of this teaching? I don't know if y'all can read that or not, that's pretty small. Some of you younger ones may be able to. And the third question, if I believe and do what they say, will I be following Jesus or will I be following them? False teachers deserve only one response from a true worshiper of Jesus. And let me say this, one wrong statement does not make a false teacher. One wrong statement doesn't make a... When we stand up and preach week after week, and when we teach regularly, we're going to make mistakes. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a regular pattern of teaching that demonstrates a message that is distinctively counter to the gospel and to the truths of Jesus Christ. It's a continual trajectory of wrong teaching. That's what makes a false teacher. And hey, false teachers can be corrected. Apollos was in the New Testament. He was teaching some things and I needed some tweaking. And so they called him into the house and they corrected him and then they sent him back out. But truly a false teacher won't be humble enough to take correction. They'll just expect everybody to bend to their message. You see, do not entertain their words, lest their words infect your affections and for their own cause. But rather, we should purge them. And that's why I come back to the end of verse 5. The way in which they treated not only these, but the other threats as well, are not identical to the way that we will deal with these threats. We live under a different governing rule, if you will, in our world and so we make application because of when this was written and when we are applying it in the world. But the seriousness with which we should approach this should be no less than what God is saying, that we should purge these false teachers and teachings from our life, lest, lest they zing something in us that says, hmm, I kind of like that. And we continue in our Twinkie eating, wondering why our health diminishes. That wasn't a great analogy, but I tried to make it. Christians purge false teachers from life in order to refine a genuine love and obedience for Jesus. You know, sometimes discerning a false teacher can be hard. 
But if that's hard, this next one is very difficult. Look with me in verse 6. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend, who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other. Verse 8, You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. Stop there. I'll stop there because the remainder of those next three verses is the same as in the other. The second thread is this. And I need you to hear me really carefully. It's close relationships with family and with friends. Close relationships with family and with friends. Moses warns that following God takes priority even over the highest loyalties on the earth. Relationships with family and close friends. No human relationship should take priority over relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And again, I say our response today is not identical to the one that is offered here, that is given here, because we process this through a filter by which we understand God would not expect or demand the same of us as he commanded his people in that day. What we do understand is this, that every relationship in this world should strengthen our relationship with Jesus or it should hold no influence over us at all. Jesus understood the pressures to prioritize close personal relationship with God over all others. Matthew chapter 12 verse 46 to 50 tells us that Jesus was in the midst of ministering. He was teaching and some people came to him and said, your mother and brothers are outside waiting and they need to talk to you right now. Now, I don't know what they needed to talk to him about, but they were important enough that they said to those people, go get him and bring him out now. And because of the way the wording is, there's tension that's created in the scenario here. And Jesus looks at them and he looks back at the people and he said, these are my, mother, or these are my brothers and my sisters. And basically he says, whatever it is needs to wait because I'm in the service of God. Now, that doesn't mean no activity in God's service can be interrupted. That's not the point that the author of Matthew is making here. The point he is making is Jesus is shifting a priority here to say there's no relationship that has greater priority on this earth with me than the relationship that I have with my heavenly Father. And his response is very decisive in making that priority. Matthew 16, verse 22 and 23, Jesus is foretelling his disciples about how he will have to suffer and ultimately die. And one of his three closest, most intimate friends, Peter, says to him, Lord, not on my watch. This will not happen. He starts throwing down some macho-isms going over my dead body. And well, that's a possibility. Actually, Peter, that will happen. But I haven't gotten to that yet. And what does he say to Peter? He says, you know not what you speak of. You're running your mouth. Stop. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Friends, he didn't call him Satan lightheartedly. He called him Satan because at that moment, Peter was being a source for the messenger of the evil one. And what he said was, if you won't follow me get out of my way I must do the will of the father even when it's hard even when you don't understand it Matthew chapter 10 I'm actually going to read just three verses here for us from Matthew 10 verse 34 do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth I've not come to bring peace but a sword this is Jesus talking for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Surely God intended that the closest relationships he gave on earth should be the greatest strength for us in our following him. 
And that's the way God intended it. But the brokenness of sin demands that not even our closest human relationships would trump our relationship with God. Any person can oppose, can ridicule, or make themselves our enemies because they lure us away from Jesus. True followers submit all relationships to give primary allegiance to Jesus. That's what this passage just taught us. It doesn't mean you will absolutely have to. Well, I love you, Mother, but I'm a Christian now, so I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Actually, actually, it's quite the opposite. That when those close relationships align under the lordship of Jesus Christ, they do become your greatest strength. They do become your greatest benefit. Even even the relationship with my wife and I, we understand that our relationship is submissive always to the personal relationship that each of us has with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we don't love God first, even if we put each other before God, we will idolize one another and damage our marriage Instead of worshiping God through our marriage. Surely all other relationships follow suit as well. When Jesus centers life in worship, every relationship serves to glorify him and strengthen relationship with him. So we can say this, that love for Jesus trumps all other loves, trumps all other lovers, and trumps all other loyalties. He is our Lord. Let me give you four responses that Moses identifies here for the way that people are purporting their relationship with the Lord, but are actually using other relationships in a wrong way. Here's a wrong response that prioritizes others above Jesus. First of all, he says this, you shall not yield or listen to him. So here's what you do when you offer a wrong response in a relationship that is replacing your or, or giving greater influence to your relationship than Jesus. You yield or you listen to him. You, you allow that person to exert greater influence in you and over you than what Jesus has for you. The second wrong response is simply that you pity them. And when you pity someone, what you do is you make an excuse for why they are an exception that rationalizes your disobedience to Jesus. You pity them. The third wrong response is you spare them. You simply say to yourself that because of who this person is, you're not going to treat them in the same way that you know you should or that you would another person. You, you spare them. Oh, they, get a, they get a get out of jail free card. The fourth wrong response is you conceal them. You twist, you reinterpret, you dismiss, or whatever you have to do to rationalize in your own mind and heart a cover for them to hide under so that your relationship with them can remain. And you do have to admit that it affects and threatens your relationship with Jesus, but you don't, you don't deal with it because you've covered them. Listen, friends, when you respond with these wrong responses, you tell Jesus that he is not worthy of your obedience and that this other person is more worthy than he is, that they're more needy or more deserving of your love. You also tell that other person that Jesus is not worthy of their first love because he's not worthy of your first love. Wrong responses to people who threaten relationship with Jesus, either directly or indirectly, lure you to forsake true worship by forsaking a faithful witness. And hear me, you may not walk away from Jesus immediately. You may not apostatize ultimately. You may actually remain close enough to other Christians or involved in enough activity through a church to rationalize that you're fine. But what you're not able to do is to let Jesus be Lord over all of life, especially when you are around this other person. Their influence on you competes with Jesus' authority over you. And inevitably, you will walk away from Jesus or, more likely and worse still, what you will do is that you will rationalize a division where Jesus holds no influence in that relationship. So you'll think you're okay with Jesus in every other way, and this is just like a special exception that you've created and expected Jesus to fit into. But hear me, friends, when a relationship creates opposition to or tension with what you know is true of God's word, it's time to act and it's time to make a change. Every relationship with a person who is not following Jesus 
can remain a threat to your true love for Jesus if you're not living properly aligned in that relationship. Now, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we are missionaries, we understand that there is a way we are to correctly relate to them. And I'll get to that in just a moment in the third threat. But for relationships, that person needs to know Jesus is your first love in life. And if they can't strengthen that, celebrate that, and encourage you in that, you're in dangerous territory. That relationship is actually bad for you, and you need to make changes, if not completely move away from the relationship, depending on what the relationship is. But more importantly, you need to know what it's doing to you, that the only way to deal with it is to stop being more faithful to that person than you are to Christ and submit that relationship to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, verses 12 through 14, I'm actually not going to read them for time. But he goes on to talk, he says, If you hear in your cities, which the Lord is God is giving you to dwell, that certain worthless fellows are beginning to follow things. And look, here's the key. Here's the key to these threats. They're saying to you this, let us go and serve other gods and let us love them or worship them. That's the key. In all three threats, what they're doing is they're luring you away from serving God, your primary relationship with God, and trying to get you to serve other things. So the third threat is this. It's the cultural patterns, it's the practices and the norms of life that entice you away from God. It's the world around you and its influence exerted upon you that causes you to say, maybe there's another God I could worship that would bring me greater satisfaction in life. And just as close relationships are subject to Jesus' lordship, so are patterns, so are practices, and so are norms that exist around us. Last week, I talked about faithful worship as in, in the expression of mission and how we go about doing that. And I gave you three ways for a Christian to faithfully deal with every issue in culture. And yes, they're generic, but at least they give you a mindset. And the first one is simply this. If God says it is good, you can receive it as good. Receive it. If God says it's good in his word, There will be plenty of people in the world that go, no, 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 no. There's an exception to that. It's blah, 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 blah. But if God says it's good, it's good. You can receive it. If there's a reason in your life, for some reason, maybe you've worshipped it. And you've got to create some space because it was a threat in another way for you. And that's okay. There are things in this world that that creates. But if God says it's good, receive it. If God says it's not good, reject it. This is simple. You say, how do we know? What God says, that's your hint, right? And if you need counsel, because here's the thing, these things get really like spider webs. They can get really confusing and cloudy. Seek counsel from wise people in the ways of God. Not just from close friends that will tell you whatever you want to hear. Make you feel better about asking the question without ever giving you an answer for it. But if God's word says no, reject it. Reject it. It doesn't matter how strong the allurement. Hear me, if God's word says it's okay and that God's given it, but the world has taken it and used it in a way that perverts it, redeem it, bring it and subject it to the authority of God's word and then you can receive it as good for your life. Receive, reject, redeem. see, the response of one who loves Jesus first and foremost, if you love him first and foremost in all, you'll remain faithful to him as Lord over all. Paul tells us that the patterns of the world and the practices and culture, there will be some who depart from the faith. And here's how they'll depart, because they devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Listen, you go, oh, well, I would never give in to a deceitful spirit or the teaching of a demon. But you will give in to the things that you learn to love. And the things of this world that are good, but that you put in the place of God, will rule you. Will rule you. Because you will become devoted to them. And you'll take a good thing and you'll make it God. And a good thing was never meant to be God because God is God. And he gives good things, but good things aren't God. 
Do not let it rule you. He also describes people who are lovers of themselves and they create difficulty for you. And so you go, I don't know if it's worth it, man. So many people are against me. James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And this friendship occurs when our affections and when our attentions, when our attitudes or our actions are more strongly aligned with what the world says than with what God says. You see, walking with Jesus means discerning and guarding against anyone or anything that threatens to lure us away from him and removing that threat from our life. Sometimes removing means realigning, redeeming, renewing, but in all ways, it realigns to Christ. Friends, I'll leave you with this as the worship team returns. Whatever infects your affections will affect your actions. Whatever infects your affections will affect your actions. And by these, you will know if you're following Jesus. I need you to understand something. God's not creating a holy club to get us away from all the sinners. God has chosen to build his holy gathering with sinners. So here we are. My point is this, friends. What's threatening your faithfulness to Jesus? There's not a one of us in the room today that's not dealing with a threat and the lure of something that's calling to us because of sin, because of the competitions of the world, but because of, of maybe relationships, whatever it is. My point to you is that will it be a test? Will it be a trial? Will it be a temptation through which God is able to grow and mature you Or will it be one that you'll allow to lure you away from him? I'll leave you with this question. How are you guarding your life against the threats that arise against your love for God? The Spirit is faithful. He will identify him. He will invite you to receive Christ, to trust in Christ, to turn to him to redeem them, to to forgive you. See, some of you are sitting here today and you're already already into the activity of it. And you go, well, it's too late. You've heard his voice today, God, uh, friends. It's not too late. God stands ready to forgive you, to redeem you, to bring you back into his fold, to, to stop whatever it is that's affecting that deep fellowship with him. That's what he wants to do in your life today. Would you respond just with a yes, with a humble surrender to him? Let's stand together as we sing and respond to the Lord.